Okay, I'm hydrated, I got my notes in front of me, and a row of action figures to help clear the psychological hurdle of what I'm about to do. Let's go! Welcome to Animation is the Best, a fan's guide to humanity's most important art form. I'm your host, Craig J. Hansen, and this week, I'm flying solo. It's that time of year again in SoCal. Temperatures have dropped into the low to mid-60s, so hey, let's pretend it's winter. Grab an extra blanket, fire up that self-diagnosed seasonal affective disorder, and join me for a special Christmas episode. It's been a while since we've done anything that's A, non-Disney, B, a short subject, and C, uh, holiday-related, so I'm looking forward to this. I'm recording at my own apartment, too, which seems to be a bit dampened acoustically compared to where we've usually recorded, and I hope that translates to some sort of a warmer, more intimate feel. Anyway, I'm not going to fuck with your feelings like that Black Mirror Christmas special. At least, I don't intend to. And uh, that opening music is, of course, from Vince Guaraldi's timeless jazz score to A Charlie Brown Christmas. But I'm not actually talking about A Charlie Brown Christmas today, even though it's an undisputed classic of holiday animation, and, uh, hey, hey, I see you over there, disputing it. Knock it off. Now, of course, there is a veritable pantheon of holiday specials I'd like to cover in due time, from Charlie Brown to the Rankin and Bass stop-motion animated ones, being uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Of course, Dr. Seuss's classic, The Manner by Which the Grinch Burgled Christ Mass, or uh, that might have been an early working title. Uh, I also can't forget Mickey's Christmas Carol, with Scrooge McDuck playing his namesake appropriately, and uh, that was even before DuckTales. Now then, then, of course, like there's the Simpsons holiday episodes, though... Uh, those became more frequent in the later seasons after I'd stopped watching the first handful of them. They were definitely on par with the regular episodes from their respective seasons with, you know, many enduring moments. You know, buy me Bone Storm or go to hell. And of course, the first ever full half hour of the Simpsons broadcast was the Christmas special, which was originally meant to be the eighth episode of that season, where they rescued the uh, then-to-be family dog Santa's little helper from a Greyhound racetrack. But uh, we'll leave those presents under the tree for this week. I'm rolling out a classic from across the pond. Like Black Mirror, it's British. But unlike Black Mirror, it does not posit a cyber-social nightmare scenario in which all our thoughts are held captive and up or down voted according to the capricious whims of an uncaring public. Probably? Now this week, snuggle up, it's time for Raymond Briggs' The Snowman. And a little background, uh, Briggs is an author and illustrator best known for his work in children's books, and among those, best known for The Snowman, which was originally published in 1978. It's completely wordless and tells the simple tale of a boy and a snowman, which comes to life one night at midnight, and the two share in an imaginative travels across the English countryside. So uh, the book's probably better described as a graphic novel, or a comic if you must. With pages laid out in neat frames, there's three across and four high, which create kind of an effect not unlike peering in through a snow-clad window frame. The illustrations are all rendered in Briggs' signature colored pencil style. So, in 1982, the book was adapted into a half-hour television special to be shown on the, uh, the, the then-new Channel 4, one of Britain's several prolific public service broadcast stations. Channel 4 had itself only launched on November 2nd of that year, so the Snowman special, airing on December 26th, was among its earliest offerings. The special was a hit and has since become a holiday standard on British television, though these days it can be freely viewed on YouTube as well as through Amazon Prime, possibly others. That's just where I found it when researching. But my initial exposure to it was on a VHS copy, which means I could indulge in some snowman whenever I wanted. President's Day? Snowman time. Cinco de Mayo? Snowman time. Keiro no Hi? Japan's respect for the aged day? 
Snowman Time. But in truth, I only remember watching this a few times as a kid, though moments of it cut through my memory when I rewatched. I think I must not have had the patience for this when I was a wee-un. Is this very much an art piece compared to our recent whirlwind tour of big-budget Disney theatrical features? And uh, that's fine by me. It's nice to get back into the quiet, seldom-visited corridors of animation appreciation. I don't know how the snowman came into my life. It was probably shown on PBS in the U.S. at some point, and maybe caught my parents' or grandparents' attention. I'm pretty sure we had it on an official standalone VHS release and not just recorded off-broadcast, though. And whatever the case, this adaptation was directed by Diane Jackson who prioritized preserving the artistic style of her source material. In addition to The Snowman, she also directed an adaptation of John Burningham's book, Grandpa, and a series based on Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit stories. And she also worked back on the Beatles animated feature Yellow Submarine, which I really want to get around to at some point. But it just goes to show that she was flexible and capable of bringing many different styles to life. It almost reminds me of uh, Canadian grant-funded animation, which we've talked about before. That whole field really reveled in experimenting with unorthodox mediums. So, getting to the film itself, there were apparently several different versions over the years. The version I watched on Amazon is the same I remember, and they all differ by way of the, an opening scene. And this one features Briggs himself walking through a cold, wintry morning, speaking these words and walking along a row of bare trees. I remember that winter because it brought the heaviest snow that I had ever seen. Snow had fallen steadily all night long. And in the morning I woke in a room filled with light and silence. The whole world seemed to be held in a dreamlike stillness. It was a magical day, and it was on that day I made the snowman. Alternate versions included one with David Bowie discovering the boy's scarf in the attic and being reminded reminded of the tale, and another produced for the 20th anniversary has Briggs's depiction of Father Christmas introducing the story. Anyway, as Briggs walks off, we're left with the shot of frost-covered ground in the trees. It transitions into the colored pencil style, and the music chimes in gently as the title card is displayed. Snow begins to fall over the scene, and I must admit I was distracted by this snow effect. It's a short loop, and it's used a lot. They don't ever seem to switch it up with a different snow cycle, but hey, most people probably wouldn't fixate on that like I do. It's important to acknowledge the music, though, as the snowman is wordless, aside from its preface, just as the book is also wordless. The music was composed by Howard Blake, who's had a long career as a performer, mainly, and a composer, though this is certainly his best-known work. The only other thing I recognized from him was that he worked alongside Queen, providing the orchestral score for uh, Flash Gordon. And so the music, it starts with a gentle piano, which twinkles gently with a melancholy descending melody. It's not as vividly reminiscent of snow falling and piling up on the ground as, say, the Vince Guaraldi piece I used up top. But this is a different mood. It's colder, darker, a bit sad, but comfortable. The difference between, like, daytime snow and nighttime snow. An owl swoops in, and then we begin to move along the snowy hills following along the hedge. We catch sight of a horse then turn over to see fences, orderly plots of land framed by the trees, and ultimately flying in through the window of the home of our main character. So there's a number of scenes in the snowman with fully animated backgrounds, and they're probably the most visually striking parts. There's a real sense of momentum and movement, and rotating the camera through the outdoor space, showing the lines and angles of the trees is quite engaging. In the house, the red-headed boy, who we find out later is named James, he turns over in bed and awakes to see the snowfall outside. There are a few points where the music doesn't just underscore the film, but does that cartoony kind of thing of standing in for sound effects. A single chime, for example, acts as James's alarm clock here. And a flute comes in very Peter and the Wolfy as uh, James's face lights up at the sight of the snow. Enthusiastically, he gets dressed. 
uh, no underwear in this weather and just jeans. He's braver than I. He rushes downstairs and collides with Dad, who's wearing pajamas and a robe. But Dad's heading upstairs. The mystery of why will never be explained. In the kitchen, Mom washes dishes, and I begin to have trouble placing when exactly this story is set. I get that they're going for a sort of a timelessness, but some details, like there's no kitchen appliances, they stay warm by the fireplace, and there's a motorcycle outside that it looks like it's like a 30s or 40s motorcycle-styled motorcycle. However, there's also television, which means it's later. So the author, Raymond Briggs, was born in 1934. So if we follow the conceit from the preface that this is autobiographical, James seems to be in the 8 to 10 years old range, which would place it at uh, 1942 to 44, which is during the height of World War II. During World War II, the BBC ceased its limited early television capabilities, and plus the TV is shown to be broadcast later shown to be broadcasting in color, which didn't start into the in the UK until the late 60s. Ultimately, all this means is I'm putting too much thought into things again, timelessness doesn't mean you can get all willy-nilly with the details, though. So James's mom insists he puts on some socks, which he grabs off a drying rack in the kitchen. Again, I'm confused, but then I grew up in a house with a dryer and in the desert climb in California, so I really lack the right frame of reference, perhaps. James, now all suited up in a red sweater, red knit cap, and his red hair will certainly not get lost from sight in the snow, but his hat falls off as soon as he hops up, and we as the audience begin to feel a sense of growing dread. <gasps> Not really. His world is all snow, but for two troughs cut across the field by a vehicle's tires. He stomps and tromps about, the music punctuating each leaden step. Mischief overtakes him, and he lobs a snowball at the front of the house, instruments standing in for Foley again, and the snowball splatters against the window with a crash of a cymbal. Uh, before long, James has set about the task of building up a heap of snow for his snowman. After tea, oh, so British... He's out again with a step stool to place the snowman's head. A green scarf and cap borrowed from Mom, which I imagine must be the itchiest wool. They go to give the snowman a shred of dignity. The snowman's decoration is rounded out with your usual, your charcoal shirt buttons, round little eyes, and an orange fruit for a nose. I don't think it's an orange, though. It's, it's flatter and wider, and it seems to be smooth-skinned, as at least as much as can be made out in the colored pencil style. Maybe it's a tomato? What it really looks like to me, though... I don't think this is a very widespread fruit in England, is a persimmon. And my grandma used to make persimmon cookies, and in that preparation, they're very sweet, soft fruit. I've never had one raw, and apparently you have to be careful with that, because unripened persimmons contain a tannin that can bind together in the stomach into a bezoar. What's a bezoar? Well, it's, it's like a stone or hard formation originating in the gastrointestinal tract, and they are not easy to deal with. Google is your friend for more on that. Honestly, I think the snowman's nose is meant to be an orange or probably uh, like a tangerine, but I just can't see anything but that persimmon. James uh, traces out a cheerful smile on the snowman's face to finish the job, and it's good. This is a snowman that looks cuddly, soft, and friendly. Snowmen usually veer into creepy territory, which is both creepy and spooky. You know, icy scarecrows with skull-like grins, spindly skeletal branch arms, hollow coal eyes, and pointy witch-like carrot noses. To that point, when I was a boy, I was in Boy Scouts, which is appropriate given the name. And on one camp out, I had, I'd heard about a secret tradition the older Scouts had to build a secret snowman that they called Snowbert. Apparently, it happened late at night on the first night of the camp out when everyone was supposed to be asleep. And I forget if somebody led me to it or if I found it myself, but it was up in, in the trees up a hill behind, behind the campsite. And, like, it was grimy and vulgar, heap of dirty gray snow flecked with pine needles, misshapen head, snow boobs, and a hot dog dick. 
So, so yeah, uh, no, I didn't have nightmares per se. It was definitely nightmarish. In that same vein, you know, like Calvin and Hobbes gets the most mileage out of snowman's inherent strangeness. But in this cartoon, this is a snowman you'd like to invite into your home. Foreshadowing. Which completely formed with sculpted out arms and tree trunky legs, the snowman stands sentinel in front of the home, watching out into the night as James returns inside. A cool blue light beams out from inside the house, inverting the usual visual language where home is warm and orange and outside is cold and blue. But James is fixated on the snowman, looking out the living room window as Dad does something I've never seen before, which is to toast bread in the fireplace holding it on a poker. Again, with blurry time frame. Have they no toasters? They can afford a television. Is fireplace bread some cozy winter tradition I'm missing out on? And yes, this is a Christmas special, so we also see their humble little Christmas tree for the first time. But it's 7.30, time for bed. You know, there are times in my childhood where I would stay over at my cousin's house during summer sometimes, and my aunt, who I love, don't get me wrong, insisted we we kids be in bed by 8 p.m. in the summer when the sun sets easily 45 minutes to an hour later than that. So for me in those moments, sleep was not easily won, nor is it here for James. Just because I'm recording by myself doesn't mean I can't execute some awesome segues. Obsessing over the snowman, James tosses and turns well into the night, it seems, and he rises to check on him out the window. Later still, come midnight, the grandfather clock downstairs chimes, and with a magical sparkling, the snowman comes to life, greeting James with a doffing of the cap and a handshake. James invites the snowman into the house, and my worry about water damage begins. I hope the magic which animates the snowman also keeps him unmelting, unwicking, as there is much contact with fabrics. Wet or not, the following are things which happen that I do not approve of. 1. Snowman gets in close to sleeping cat, cat wakes up, is rightfully terrified, lashes out and run off. 2. James laughs at above, traumatized my pet and my new magical friend, T. He. 3. Snowman sits in dad's chair and is mesmerized and hypnotized by the television. 4. Snowman overheats, sitting next to the still rather brightly glowing embers of the living room fireplace. That hazards on James's parents, though. 5. In the kitchen, James shows off their cold and hot running water, steaming up the snowman. I know he's young, but he should at least realize he does not a good play here, especially immediately after the fireplace moment. 6. At their most intrusive, James and Snowman creep into parents' room as they sleep. Snowman tries out Dad's dentures, which, by the way, are a full set, top and bottom. They're like the wind-up chattering teeth you'd consider buying from an Archie McPhee catalog until you realize they'd only be amusing once. I know it's England, but is the stereotype about dental issues really so true that this dad, probably only in his mid to late 30s, needs a full set of replacement teeth? Anyway, seven further from that, the snowman tries out mom's makeup. Eight further from that, the snowman tries on articles of both mom and dad's clothing. Nine, snowman rides a friggin' motorcycle carrying James into the dense woods. And, like, they weave through the trees and nearly run into animals, and critters go running in fear. Over the course of this, the snowman melts his thighs by engine heat. It's it's all very dangerous, loud, disruptive, and more than a bit destructive. <sighs> in the interest of fairness, these are things which happen that I am okay with. Snowman and James enjoy the lights and ornaments on the Christmas tree. Snowman marvels at a cake topper version of himself that Mom made. That's cute. Snowman replaces his nose with various fruits from the kitchen fruit bowl. Banana, apple, pineapple even, it's all harmless fun. Then the snowman cools down next to the fridge like a fellow by a campfire. 
and they invert the color language here again, and the glow from within the fridge is is shown as cozy orange, which always it throws me off a little whenever I see it. And so the, from there, we continue into James's room, and the snowman dances about with a teddy bear as a ballerina music box plays. It gets a bit dicey with a stray roller skate, a train set, and uh, there's like a rain of balloons from somewhere. But at least here, James is only messing up his own stuff. Also, at least, at least, during the motorcycle fracas, both the snowman and James are wearing helmets. The snowman recovers in a large freezer from his motorcycling injury. Again, to the snowman, the freezer is inviting, and the light glows orange. And yeah, it throws me off, expecting it to actually represent warmth. But in the freezer, the snowman sees a frozen food package with artwork depicting snowy wilderness. He is reminded of something, somewhere. So... Having been shown the wonders of James's world, the snowman beckons for James to hang on tight. The music revs up like a plane taking off, for, in fact, the snowman and James run away from the house and leap into the air, flying away to a larger adventure. And now begins the most striking and memorable section of the film, and it's probably its most enduring element. For up until now, we've only had the musical score guiding us along, but here is the song, Walking in the Air, which has become a holiday standard in its own right, and like covered by dozens of bands. Meaningless connections, cause I'll never stop looking for them. There's a cover of this song by Finnish symphonic metal band Nightwish that I'm going to close the episode with. Thomas Holopainen, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing, is that band's founder and leader. And he's a, he's also a longtime fan of Scrooge McDuck and the Duck comics we've spoken about before. And he has produced, he's produced a concept album, music inspired by the life and times of Scrooge, which is way better than you'd expect. Anyway, Walking in the Air is sung by a lad named Peter Outy, who was a choir boy at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, 13, when he recorded this song. It's a lovely song, but Outy really trills those R's. Who am I to judge? I've never been a choir boy, or classically trained, or good at singing at all, really. Yeah, I suppose it's obvious how alone I am here, given the lack of singing the besties usually provide, but hey, when I decided I'd do this episode, I gave them the right of first refusal, which they exercised. So here I am, alone as James is, up in the sky, above the sleeping world below. And know the fact that James has a companion in flight doesn't make him not alone. James isn't with a human man, he's with a snowman. A magical snowman, satellite on the winds of winter. Because snowflakes blow around in the wintry air, so I guess that means anything made of snow does too. Dream magic, am I right? <laughs> Well, I'm definitely not going to try singing this, but perhaps a recitation would be appropriate. <clears throat> we're walking in the air. We're floating in the moonlit sky. The people far below are sleeping as we fly. I'm holding very tight. I'm riding in the midnight blue. I'm finding I can fly so high above with you. Far across the world, the villages go by like trees. The rivers in the hills, the forests, and the streams. Children gaze open-mouthed, taken by surprise. Nobody down below believes their eyes. We're surfing in the air. We're swimming in the frozen sky. We're drifting over icy mountains floating by. Suddenly, swooping low on an ocean deep, arousing of a mighty monster from its sleep. We're walking in the air. We're dancing in the midnight sky. And everyone who sees us greets us as we fly. So yeah, the lyrics are very literally describing the actions on screen, but it still sounds nice by itself. But there's a lot to like about this sequence aside from the song. The scenery as they fly past is largely animated, and more of that spinning point of view is the house, trees, and fences below. They cut dark lines in the otherwise stark, snowy countryside. More snowmen join them in flight as they soar past the town and pier, heading out above the ocean. Below, a cruise ship with revelers, including your necessary cartoon souse, who sees past the haze of his drunkenness and spots the magical flying snowmen. A glance at the bottle of champagne. What's in this drink? 
There's also a Christmas cracker being popped, which is, again, a British thing I don't have any childhood memories of. I was introduced to them within the past few years by a friend. They're little paper tubes with grabby on two bits at each end, and when you yank them apart, there's like a little firecracker snap, kind of like those poppers you, you can throw around. And inside is traditionally a paper crown, some candy, maybe a small toy, and a bad joke. It's got to be a bad joke, otherwise it's not authentic. Why was the snowman sorting through carrots? He was picking his nose. What do snowmen eat for breakfast? Snowflakes. You know, those caliber of groaners. Crackers aside, we get the bird's eye view as we cut through coastal cliffs and mountain villages nestled in woodlands. Behold, a pair of sheep. Another child, awake well past midnight now and not having her own magical adventure. You alright, girl? Everything okay in your world? She catches sight of the pair as they fly on. James and the snowman climb up, up past high mountain peaks and out over the sea again. This whole sequence has a Fantasia flavor to it, with the emphasis on natural scenery guided by music and, you know, experimenting with the unconventional colored pencil animation. Whales breach the surface of the water, penguins live in the incorrect hemisphere, and the northern lights light up the night sky northernly. They really aurora that Borealis as James and the snowman come into land. Eerie music as they advance through more forest, arriving at last in a clearing filled with snowmen. Snowmans? Snow people? They're all decked out in party hats and different neckties. As the crowd parts, who's that in the middle of them all? Why, Santa, of course. Or Father Christmas, I suppose, is the more accurate answer. The snowman was meant as a Christmas special, after all, and they slotted in Briggs's rotund and kind of gnome-like design of Father Christmas from a book he had published about a decade earlier. The whole flight sequence was also greatly expanded on from what was in Briggs's original book. There, they only went as far as the pier, but now it is revealed that they are at the North Pole, Santa's North Pole, and if you're curious, like I was, that's more than 2,700 miles away from James's home. How can we know that with such certainty? Well, Santa gives James an early present, and it indicates his hometown to be Brighton. James's last name is also, if we go by this label, an indecipherable scribble. Right, so there's also a really long party scene with dancing snowmen of many lands. There is like a kilt snowman and a Chinese rice paddy hat snowman and a cowboy snowman. And this is the dullest stretch of this for me. Eminently clear that this was inserted for time filler and to kind of up the Christmas content. Otherwise, this film would be perfectly acceptable as just, you know, like a Christmas adjacent story. There's none of the usual Christmas messages like family togetherness or setting aside differences, you know, making an effort to travel, to be with loved ones, nothing about the importance of giving instead of receiving or accepting that which is given to you, and nothing religious either. The true core of it is this fleeting friendship between James and the snowman, whether merely dreamed or truly magical. The Christmas element is fluff, though it does allow for one nice narrative addition, which I'll be sure to mention. Or will I? I'd better be sure to mention it. I wrote this entire episode out ahead of time, including this part here about me having written it out ahead of time. I am not confident just jamming by myself on this. Cannot be overstated the value of others in a conversational podcast, you know. Not least of which for the multiplicative quality multiple minds bring to the length of discussion. Plus, who knows what other folks would have brought up that I didn't grok. If you would like to share your thoughts and observations, please email us at aitbpod at gmail.com. Where were we? Right. Santa's given James his scarf gift early, and there's reindeer, and it's all very cute. But the time is running out, and the snowman must return James back home ahead of the sunrise. A quick pat on the reindeer, and a hug from Sant Sant, and off they fly. After some time, they land, and the music is a bit melancholy here, and you bet James and the snowman, they wave their goodbyes. As James enters the house, the blue scarf wrapped around his neck. A moment's pause, then James rushes out for one last hug as the snowman takes up his original watchful position once more. 
The next morning, James rushes downstairs past his parents. They're at a small dining room table, none the wiser that their marital sanctuary was not hours before menaced by an icy golem. But now is not the time for levity. As the snowman really sucker punches you here at the end, James runs outside, hoping to see his friend once more, but truly their one meeting contained their final goodbye. Shielding his eyes to the light of the morning, James finds only a sad heap of snow, upon which rests the green hat and scarf. But James reaches into his pocket and finds his own blue scarf from Santa. Not a dream after all? The camera pulls away from James, turning so he is facing away from us. We look down from above and behind him, seeing only the blankness of the snow, the remains of the snowman, and the back of the small sad boy as he falls to his knees beside his lost friend. Roll credits! Roll credits as the whole image fades to white with snow falling past. That's it! That's the way it ends. It is so sad. But also beautiful. The message to be taken is, upon reflection, a good one. You cannot be sure how much time you have with those people in your life who make things magical and wonderful. Go on adventures with them. Make memories. Things you can keep. Because time is fleeting and all things, like a snowman, are temporary. And you know, I lost my grandfather to old age just this past weekend, when I was originally planning on recording this episode, so this thought has been pacing around quietly in the background of my mind these past few days. I was already feeling poignant upon revisiting the snowman, but here I am, prepping my notes for the episode, and it's something I'm really living out right now. There are many sorrows I've felt, memories I'm holding on to, but I can't stay down forever. There are new seasons ahead, demanding they be lived. When it gets cold, I have something about him to keep close, to warm me up. My own scarf, as it were. But that's what I needed to mention, if I can switch back gears from real-life mode into detached analyst mode. The original book did not have the North Pole visit, and thus did not have the scarf, the element of magical realism to, uh, well, bridge the magical and the real. So while the snowman party is a bit of a bore, it benefits the tale to have that scarf, I think. So that's The Snowman, one of Britain's favorite holiday broadcasts, and Finland's too, which help, probably helps explain why Nightwish did that cover. So you may be wondering, can I enjoy this even though I'm a yank? I am sad to report the answer is no, but it's easy to pretend. Of course that's a lie. The snowman can be enjoyed by all, except perhaps those who suffer from homonochionophobia. That's fear of snowman, look it up. The biggest factor, I think, will be patience, as this is a real lullaby of a cartoon. I mean that as a compliment, I hope. This is a gentle, soft, enveloping film with gorgeous animation and design, surprisingly warm for something so concerned with the cold. Now, as the credits rolled, I was also quite surprised at the prominence of women involved in the production. Women in animation still kind of feel rare, especially at like the directorial level, but the core creative force of The Snowman was between Diane Jackson, director, who also did storyboarding and raw animation alongside Joanna Fryer and Hilary Audis. Design supervisor was a woman named Joe Brooks. There's a Robin White who is credited with the flying sequences, but I could not find confirmation whether they are male or female. That's certainly a gender-neutral name in England. And yes, I did find confirmation that Hilary Outis is a woman. I know that name's also ambiguous. And uh, the Jan Skelsey, I'm not sure about them either. However, there are a bunch of women listed among the senior and key renderers. Though I'm not entirely sure what renderer means in the, in the context of this traditional animation. You know, by most definitions these days, rendering is referring to computer rendering, a 3D animation. But here I don't know. I thought it might have to do with the actual filming and f photographing of frames, but camera operation is credited separately. Maybe it's keeping track of frame orders or scene sequences. I may never know. If you know, send me an email at aitpipod at gmail.com. Anyway, rendering is a pretty well-balanced group going off these names. Rebecca, Lucy, Jan, maybe? Isabel, Frankie, maybe? Claire, Millie, Anne, Amanda, Francis, maybe? Allison, maybe? 
Jenny, Vicky, Teresa, Carol, maybe Glenn, maybe. Even discounting ambiguities, that's like half this team made up of ladies, which strikes me as impressive for 1982. And uh, yeah, not to repeat myself too much, but this was a very popular adaptation, airing every year and with assorted introductions produced. In 2012, many of the original production team returned to create The Snowman and the Snow Dog, a 30th anniversary sequel. Original director Diane Jackson had passed away in 1992, unfortunately, so Hilary Aldis, who I mentioned earlier, helmed that production. And I don't feel much of a need to talk about it, as it follows very many of the same plot beats as the original. But feel free to watch it if you want to get sad again. Plus, a dog dies, but a new one is brought to life with the snowman's magic. Plus... The snowman straight up steals a plane to fly the kid to the North Pole, which feels like an escalation of danger over the original's motorcycle. Oh, also, the kid finds all the snowman's old bits, including his coal, hat and scarf, and shriveled up tangerine nose, persimmon nose, whichever it is, hidden under a floorboard in James's old room. Which means James held onto those scraps of his lost friend for however much longer he lived in that house until he either died or moved away, leaving those snowman corpse hunks behind. There was also way more cultural and ethnic caricatures than I would have expected for a 2012 production among that movie's party with snowmans of many nations. And the all-important music is nowhere near as good as the original. On second thought, maybe don't watch it, and let the original stand alone. All said and done, I hope you have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, uh, whatever you're supposed to say for Kwanzaa, a solemn solstice, a nice non-denominational winter get-together, whatever holiday you celebrate, Saturnalia, Newtonmas, Boxing Day, Festivus, Coliata, Yule, Day of the Birth of the Unconquered Sun, and any other interesting-sounding celebration I can find on Wikipedia. So, what do I want to find stuffing my Nightmare Before Christmas Tim Burton gift-eating snake? My list includes, but is not limited to, following us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Twitter. Leave us a review on iTunes. Share us with your friends, and to one and all, have a happy new year, and a good bye. <laughs>